0: Welcome to The Growing Band Director, the podcast that dives into topics applying to all of us band directors. My name is Kyle Smith, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Jeff Smith. Together, we discuss many aspects of a school band program, including how to build your concert, jazz, and marching programs, as well as everything else we do as band directors. More importantly, we'll discuss concepts that help us all improve our own programs every day. Always remember the famous quote by Ray Kroc, when you're green, you're growing, and when you're ripe, Rot. Let's get started. All right, so everybody, welcome back to episode 19. This is called um, "How to Improve Your Band Through Singing" with Dean Neal. Dean, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, Kyle. Thanks.
0: Great, uh, Jeff. What do you have to this morning? Are you causing any trouble?
1: No, my uh, I'm dog sitting my son's dog while. With my two dogs.
0: Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a
2: that's a very uh, uh, auspicious uh, beginning <laughs> to the recording.
0: <laughs> well, we're uh, I'm going to hope he jumps back on here in a second. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why don't we keep rolling? And um, Dean, tell us a little bit about your yourself, your history, your past, your teaching, and all that.
2: Sure. I just uh, finished up actually year number 32 in music education. And um, I taught for 30 years at uh, Maine Central Institute in Pittsfield. And then the last two years I've taught at Nokomis Regional High School in Newport. And um, when I I got into music education in my studies, I was uh, pretty... Pretty clearly focused that I was going to be a um, band director. You know, I was like, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to study, and I'm going to be a band director. And then my first job was teaching everything uh, instrumental, choral, classroom, music, all at the high school level, nine through 12. And quickly I I, uh, realized, man, maybe I should have paid attention a little bit better in my keyboarding classes and all that (laughs) kind of stuff. (laughs) So, and um, but, but, you know, quickly started to, you know, uh, really focus on not being so much a band director is just really focused on being a music educator and what that meant and what that meant for my students and what they needed. And so, uh, yeah, so I did everything at the high school level for about seven years or so. And and the program had grown to a point where the school, uh, you know, we advocated to have a, a second position and we did get somebody to teach choral music. And, and piano classes, and we had that for quite a few years, about 20 years, and uh, then we had to make some reductions, and I had to go back to doing um, full uh, band and choir for the last couple of years at MCI, and then for the last two years at Nokomis, I've been doing that again. Even though I was f- kind of focused on instrumental music for those 20 years in between, uh, I continued to do uh, vocal jazz ensembles, and... So I was um, very much um, involved with still vocal teaching and uh, being an instrumentalist and a vocalist myself in performance. I was still learning new methodologies and techniques. And and so, um, you know, kind of the focus for me as as I went along, again, was to try to be as complete a music educator as I could. I remember having a conversation with a a parent from another community that was uh, kind of promoting a performance that was going to be in their area. And it was with a, a classical violinist and and uh, the the parent, she was like, you know, um, it'd be great, you know, if maybe some of the kids, you could have some of your students come or maybe you could come. You know, I I know you're a jazzer, but this thing and I was like, uh, you know, I kind of I kind of for a moment kind of like, you know, kind of reined in my immediate kind of my knee jerk response was kind of going to go into like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a jazz or I'm a foot, but, but I kind of tempered that and kind of said like, well, you know, I do enjoy jazz and my students do, but I think they really benefit from all types and styles of music, and hopefully we can bring that. So yeah, so um, I've tried to basically incorporate good music education technique and principles and whether it's my choral classroom or instrumental classroom, or my guitar classroom, digital music production, um, lots of different things that I teach at the high school level.
0: Yeah. You know, you seem to me like the teacher that the kids really trust, right? Um, and you seem like somebody that um, I think you're you are a fantastic teacher um, in sort of every idiom. You know, I think, again, I wouldn't peg you as a band guy or a choral guy or a jazz guy or anything. I think you're just a teacher, you know, and that's kind of the highest compliment I can give somebody, right? Somebody who's just a really invested teacher and you feel like, your whole life's mission is to take whoever's in front of you that day or that year and help them improve through whatever idiom you have. Am I accurate?
2: Yeah, I think so. I've I've said to students many times that, um, um, if I wasn't teaching music, I would be teaching something. I really feel strongly that teaching is, you know, what I've been called to do. Um, and then they follow that up with, well, what would it be? And I'm like, ah, I really like history and I like physical education. I really, so they're like, what? So, but uh, no, I, I really, you know, uh, well, thank you for that compliment. And I really kind of, I guess if there's one thing that I do um, uh, kind of like strive to do is, to, you know, be a good teacher, educator, sure. or whatever whatever idiom that's kind of so
0: so oftentimes we hear bands who are just we would say loaded right there's just all these players and of course they're going to sound good there's all these these players um you know you're somebody who I've seen with really good players but I've also seen your your bands perform where they sound amazing but you can tell that you've crafted every moment of that performance because what what you might have that year is not considered an all-star band yet they still sound amazing in the end and that's a testament to to your teaching. It's not like there's something in the water where you teach. it's the, the things that you do to make it really good. I also I also feel like you're one of the teachers um, that you could teach fifth grade band. You could teach high school band, middle school band. you could teach uh, college ensembles, right You could kind of take any level of student and help them improve. Well,
2: it's interesting. Last last year, uh, because of some of the challenges with COVID restrictions and whatnot, and and what our staff was called to do, um, we had a little bit of a we did have opportunity to begin our fourth graders. We start in our district in fourth grade with instrumental, you know, music, and but our, our normal staff that would do that, they, they just couldn't because of the way the schedule was working. And I, and I said, well, what if, what if I do it? I, I think I can carve out this time, you know, every other day and, and get over, you know, I had to travel over to the elementary school. And so I was doing beginning band fourth grade, uh, getting them started on their instruments. And I had, I had a blast. Uh, the kids had a great time. I had a great time. Um, I think they learned something. So uh, in, in the process, but it was, you know, somebody said like, you know, a lot of my high school colleagues in other departments were like, Oh man, you know, go fourth grade. What was that like? And I said, Oh, those kids are just, they're just so it's so fun. You know, they're just, they at fourth grade, they are eager to try things and they're not, most of them are, you know, kind of throw caution to the wind and like, let's try this. And so, you know, like like they're just sponges kind of like taking it in. So, so yeah, I, I, I enjoy that. And um, you know, that trust part is kind of one of the first things that I wanted to talk about. Actually, you write up about trust. And I think in anything that we're doing in our classroom, developing those that relationship with the students. So that when you say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do this today. You know, there's always maybe some, somebody that's kind of thinking like why or what, or what? So if you've got a good relationship with your students um, again, one of the better compliments I've had from a parent um, and educator administrator uh, when I taught their child was uh, we were chatting one day, I think after Berkeley jazz festival one year or something. And, uh, and he was like, you know, you could ask these students to do anything and they would try it, they, they, would, they would do it. And, and he, you know, he commented that like, that's, that's about that uh, building that trust with them, um, you know, and, and working through some things, so.
0: To me, there's something about the performer conductor relationship, you call us conductors when we're in front of the kids, right? Um, because we have to show emotion and be vulnerable to, to help them perform well. And then they have to show emotion, be vulnerable, vulnerable. And then when we share that together, that creates like a really cool bond, you know, and I trust is a really good way to put that. Um, Jeff, I have a question for you. Can um, I
1: bounce a question off this first before yes. you ask me a question? Yep. So Dean, I, I always found that when getting the kids trust was paramount, but then secondarily to maintain that was to make certain I had the trust of the parents. Would you agree with that?
2: Oh, yeah, 100%. And um, I, I will say, you know, coming into where I'm teaching now, um, I'm only in my second year of teaching, but uh, in this school district, but I had the advantage, if you will, of living in this community, uh, my whole life, um, I taught in another school system, but I live in the school community that I'm working and now teaching. Um, so I had I had actually developed years of, of relationships and, and and whatnot with with parents or even in some cases, grandparents of these kids that I'm teaching now. And um, as hard as that is to admit, um <laughs> as I'm getting older. But yeah, having that with the parents and the community members and building that sense that, um, you know, you're there for their kids. You're there to, to give them the need you know, the attention and to, to do what's needed for them. Um, I think the, all those communication pieces, um, are, are really critical. So and, yeah, and you don't
0: have an, you don't have an ego about doing what you're doing. You're, you're selfless and trying to help the kids, you know, and oh. your, your, your best, your best tool to help the parents trust you is the kids who go home and, you know, they're going to say it once a week or whatever. It's like, Oh, how's band going? You know, and they're going to be honest with, oh man, Mr. Smith's a jerk or whatever. And that's how, you know, um, that's how good and bad things start. So if their kid loves you and they're, you're bringing a benefit to the kid's life, the parents are going to love you.
1: Yeah. And I think some of our younger, I think there are things that go ahead, Dylan. Well,
2: I I think this year what I saw was a a lot of interactions with students and parents when there were questions about, you know, whether they were events or calendar issues or any of those kinds of things. You know, um, I used the phrase this year a lot that, um, you know, I have a lot of expectations and sometimes expectations aren't. Met and that's okay, but but we have I set high expectations, and then there are certain things that I demand, and a demand is different than an expectation. Mm -hmm. And so, how do we work through those things? And even sometimes we, you know, a, a, a student or a family can't meet a demand. And so, how do we work through those kinds of conflicts? How do we resolve those? And that communication with parents and and students. Uh, you know, collectively is is so critical. And there were some moments that that I thought, oh, how's this going to work out? And when I reached out to parents, or they reached out to me, um, they worked out well. I, I would say ninety nine point nine percent of the time that when I'm willing, or a parent is willing to reach out and and communicate and uh, work through things, um, they work out well. You know, for the positive, for the student. For me, as the teacher, for the parent, and for the program, they they really do. Rarely, even in my 32 years of teaching, has it really come to a, a point where you know loggerheads and like the resolution. It, it, it really, uh, you know, the program is is at a loss, or the student is at a loss, or like it's you know my my whole goal is to. I know it's not always possible, but my whole goal is to make it a, a winning situation for everybody. So.
0: Jeff, you know, having spent your majority of your career down in Connecticut, um, Dean, you know, I think every area has those teachers who are very versatile and just very quality teachers, no matter what they're teaching. And you would you would love to hire them anywhere for any position because, you know, they do a great job. Do you have any any teachers that come to your mind while you were teaching who were similar to Dean in that way?
1: Yes, uh, John Mastriani, John first taught at Bridgeport Central High School, then John went on to the Canaan High School, then John went on to Hall High School, then he went to Canton High School, became one of the Presidential Teachers of the Year, and now he is a uh, Associate Professor of Jazz Studies at University of Connecticut. Uh, John is just like Dean. He teaches on all levels, engages all students, and he's a Pied Piper. He gets the trust and the love of anybody who ever works with him—he's just got one of those dynamic personalities
0: that you can't forget. It's—it sticks with you. Um, and thanks to Jeff's recommendation, he's doing the honors band of jazz all state next year.
1: Oh, and, uh, that's great! I, I was fortunate He student taught under me, and uh, I, as a teacher, I learned a lot from my student teacher, and uh, he, he was a wonderful influence. And he used to run a jazz camp in Stamford, Connecticut. And I used to send as many of my kids as possible to that in the summer to just have the opportunity to work with him to, to be as as light as him. But I think the thing that he he was great about was that when uh, when he went to Hall, um, you know, Hall High School, uh, Hall High School Jazz Orchestra, and his first demand was that everybody must be in concert band if they're going to be in the jazz orchestra. He felt that the concert band had to be the focal point of the program, and then everything branched out from there. And In doing such, he created the whole high school, we didn't create it, but he made the whole high school contraband as equally as dynamic as the whole high school jazz orchestra. And then the funny thing is he left after becoming teacher of the year, he went to Canton and his first year at Canton goes to Berkeley and is a finalist at Berkeley. And that's the, the comment you made earlier, Kyle, where Dean can go into a group, not maybe the most dynamic group of individuals, but when it's performance and the time to put it out on the table, their dynamic just by the way Dean taught them. Well, John was the same way.
0: Yeah. So um, we have Dean on because of his expertise, not only in band, but also in choir. And, you know, I think a lot of us use singing with our bands. Um, I think most of us, if we had to take a lie detector test, would like to do it more than we do, you know, cause we always, it's one of those things I forget to do enough. Um, and, you know, as a musician, when I was in high school, Dean, you went to Nakoma's High School, right? Yes, I did. I went to South Portland High School. Jeff, where did you go to high school? Norwalk High School, where I taught, just like you guys. So both of you, ta- both of you taught where you went to school. That's awesome. Um, eventually. Eventually, right. Um, when I was in high school, I remember being 19th trumpet in, in, Southern, in District 1, for my freshman year, I made honors band, but I was like chair number 19. I think they just wanted to let me in. I don't know why, but 19. And then I, the choir teacher pulled me aside and said, you're going to sing in chorus. Can you match pitch? And I said, I don't know, you know, I'm like 14 year old boy. She said, well, can you match this pitch? And she doesn't know. And of course I don't, I don't sing it. So then she was brilliant in, in, in the way that she found my note, right? So I was singing a note and she found it on the piano and then, and then got me to feel what that was like to match the pitch. So she found she went to my range and the note I was on was probably F or something, and then she moved me up and down um, with the piano, and then she um, decided that you know then she let me be able to match pitch within an octave or so and and so to make a, a long story longer um, I, I I I I was able to join chorus and then select choir and, and chamber singers and a barbershop quartet. And within 18 months, I had made first chair trumpet in the state. So, you know, I wasn't a vocal performer, but that whole getting the music inside, being able to perform it vocally, that changed everything about playing the trumpet. Now the trumpet was just an organ, like a a, a tool to make the music, but the music was really in my head. And, um, you know, it's also a great life lesson to make first trumpet. And then the next year make seventh trumpet and feel like you got better, but you, you got a worse placement placement. So that was fun. Um, so, you know, if people are not used to the singing portion of the musicianship, I think it's a huge deal. So if you have a program where your students can sing in chorus as well as singing in your band, right, that's going to improve your band immensely just by doing that. Um, so let's let's dive into a little bit the tools you use, Dean, um, in a band rehearsal. Let's go specifically concert band or jazz band rehearsal um, vocally.
2: Sure. So um I don't, first of all, I don't have a lot of students at the moment that are crossing over between the concert choir and the concert band. Not a lot. Scheduling is tough in a lot of our schools. And, but, but I do see that number increasing, you know, last year there were virtually none. Uh, this year there were, um, three or four and next year, I think that'll be even more by the looks of it. So, um, and that requires sometimes like independent studies and different doing different things to make that work, but um, that's a great thing when you can have them in both ensembles because they're gaining skills in in both areas that are going to benefit each other uh, consistently. Um, but for the majority of the kids in band, they're they're not in choir, they're not singing, uh, you know, in an organized manner. So the f- first thing, really, how First, first of all, let me back up and say, I always used it in, in some way, the singing and band, but I never used it enough as you, even as you said, like it's something there and like, okay, let's all sing this pitch or hum this pitch. And like, and then we go on and and we kind of forget about it. But then I think it was about four years or so ago, um, I couldn't make it to the university of Maine for a flute master class, but I was really interested. The flutist's name was uh, Robert Dick. And so I looked up a video following and, and he was talking a lot in this particular series that he was doing on throat tuning on flute. And he was talking about singing, th- th- singing through his instrument and how that helped his sound and intonation and everything. And I thought well, that's, that's a really interesting way of, putting that of stating that that we are stinging through our instrument um and when i started and i thought i'm going to go back and really start to make a, a concerted effort to incorporate this into um my rehearsals in, whether it's in warm-up or just in the rehearsal process uh if we're having some intonation issues with with this passage or this pitch and how can i introduce that So the idea of singing through our instrument, and I've always said to my students, um, we know that music is such a strong connection with brain functioning and problem solving and processing. But I always say that, you know, when I sing, I have no, I cannot rely on any buttons or valves or anything to push. Everything's gotta be my brain processing it. And the better that it does that with regard to um, all of the musical components that we're applying, the better I can do it in, in vocalizing it, I feel like it's even stronger when I bring that to my instrument. So in starting that for uh, our our wind players and even our percussion students, starting that out, I start really simple. And, and at first, I don't even, I try not to use the term sing, because for some of them, that can be a little bit, you know, intimidating. Right. You know, stigmatizing. I go back to one of my students a few years ago in his senior year. We started doing this a lot in his senior year. And I remember Marisa Weinstein, who is a fantastic uh, educator, music educator in the middle school at Warsaw Middle School, who, again, can teach anything. Um, said, oh my gosh, how did this student react? Because in middle school, I said, we're going to sing this pitch. And that student said, I'm quitting. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when they were in like fifth grade or something like that, fifth or sixth grade or seventh grade, they were like, I'm not singing. I'm, I didn't join band to sing. I right. don't sing. Right. So one of the ways that I kind of skirt that in the beginning is I say, okay, we're going to vocalize this. You know, I kind of take the word sing out. I mean, if it, if singing truly singing was as simply as us open our mouth and it comes out and it's just amazing then that's quite a disservice to the world of of choral and vocal education that ta-da we're all singing now um and yet i believe truly believe that anyone can sing uh how we improve the quality of that and everything is is a whole other thing well there's a
0: there's a a quick a quick story about people being tone deaf you know we'll say that i mean What percentage of people are actually tone deaf? People think that because you can't match pitch right now that you're tone deaf. But the two examples that um, Ben Zander uses is when you're driving a stick shift car, right? When you hear the engine rev, you know when it's to that point to shift, right? And the other one he says is when your mom calls on the phone, you can hear one word. And not only do you know it's your mother, you know what kind of mood she's in, right? So we we have fantastic ears. It's a matter of getting our physical body to... To produce what our ears know, and you're talking about vocalizing like all the same things that make a good vocal tone are the same things that make a good instrumental tone. I mean, if your tongue's in the wrong spot, if your if your throat's closed, if if there's tension in your jaw, all the things they all transfer right over.
2: Absolutely. So so I start from there, and it's just so uh, even thinking back um, for many of the students, this was new as we I last year was a very Different year, obviously, with all of our restrictions. This year was back to more somewhat normal, I would say. It still wasn't really 100%, but as it got back to more normal, I started to introduce these things to these students because it was new to them, and and so so I would say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna make this pitch, and we'd start with unison, you know, just to keep again to simplify it. This is, and if I did use the word sing, I would say I would say this is I am I don't care about your tone or any of that right now. I, the, I I'm trying to take out the stigma of how good do I sound or how bad do I, that is not it at all. So, and and I very clearly state to them that I, I know this isn't chorus, but just go with me. And again, this goes back to our first talk about trust. If I have a relationship with them, then that's positive and that they trust me. And that when I ask them to do something that, um, that they're able to get there. I, I don't start with this also at the very beginning of the year. And that's because for many of the students who are new to our band,
0: that's
2: not a hip way to start. Like that's not a good foot to start on because it's our voice is very personal to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's one thing, you know, my instrument is personal, but it's not my voice. It's an extension of that. But my voice is my is mine. And so people get really kind of like kind of closed about that. And so I I wait a little bit before introducing it uh, several weeks. But when I do introduce it, at that point, I already introduced a lot of other new things to the kids. And so I've kind of taken them through the process. And they understand uh, that when we do new things, I help to establish what's the purpose in it. So even when I ask them to vocalize, it's usually in a unison pitch. I even ask them to find the octave that's comfortable with them. Mm-hmm. But as an educator, I need to be able to demonstrate. So I might ask them to start on a unison concert B flat. Uh, so I, as hearing it, and then I would ask them to vocalize that and just humming it first. Right. Mm, or if I have, and then when we move to um, uh, auto, you know, a vocalization of that outside of humming, Ah. then I ask them to do it on ah and I just have them produce it ah or in their depending on the range that they're singing in ah. so I have to be comfortable as a as an educator vocalizing that in my what we'd call full or chest voice yeah. or in my falsetto or head voice and so I think that helps for the um maybe the female or high voice uh part singers in our band that they can hear it in a register that clicks in their brain about where that is. And for the lower voice singers, that we can do that for them too.
0: And when you when you have them hum, that's like you're kind of keeping it inside more. They can hear it well. It's not as out there. So that's a good intermediate step.
2: It's a it's a great beginning step because again, it's it's uh we would do that in all of our vocal warmups. I don't start, I do, you know, I don't engage the vocal folds our vocal chords uh, without doing humming or a lip lip trill kind of exercises first as singers. So as uh, instrumentalists, I'm not going to ask them to do it either. I'm, I, you know, I'm going to want them to just to get the
0: vocal cords going. And again, it's way less intimidating to do that. And so Dean, as you, as you start on B flat, have you ever seen teachers who have the kids memorize B flat so that the first thing they do in the morning is they sing that?
2: Um, you know, I, most of our, in my choir, most of the exercises that I do, I start from B flat and then I move them to other keys. Um, and in contraband, we kind of do similar kind of thing. I've not really kind of been a big, you know, like I haven't harped on the memorized B flat thing. It's um, funny. I,
0: I, I say it because I was, I was, uh, observing my wife and I went down to Fairfax County and watched Linda Gammon teach, um, mm-hmm. at Rachel Carson middle school. And what was great was that, you know, she, she walked in and it was like, all right, let's hum B flat. And they all went, mm, they hummed it right away. And we were just shocked. Like, how, how does this happen? And she said, you know, it's actually it's pretty simple. If you do it a couple of days in a row and then you find it like the third or fourth day, they'll have it. And it's not, not this special thing. And um, it was just a tool. So we went home and tried it. And sure enough, within a week, the band could, could hum B flat. And, and then you can start singing all these exercises you're going to talk about you know, even before you, before you play.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in my, in the choral group, I think it's, it's, it's there. It's, pre, first of all, my choral group, my concert choir is um, uh, it's open enrollment. So it's not a select choir. And so there are kids in there that absolutely we do those exercises every day and do more and they can hundred percent do it. And then there are students that need more time to develop that skill. I think the similar thing would uh, you know occur for, for the band um, in doing that. But yeah, so it just starts with the starts with that unison pitch. Uh, we stay in what would be considered a comfortable range. So I stay initially, if we do any movement, it's just maybe within a fifth, a range of a fifth. I don't worry about completing an octave early on. That's not my goal at all, because I want them to understand that what I'm not trying to do is especially in band is to get them to be singers yet. That's again, there are a lot of kids that, are, that might respond negatively to that because they didn't join to be in choir. So, so I do have to manage, um, you know, how, how much time we spend with it, you know, how the frequency of it. And to me, that's just about kind of knowing your students and kind of being able to, to kind of, put that in in strategic moments um, that I can talk more about when we talk about going from warm ups to repertoire. Right.
0: That's great. So let's keep going. What's next?
2: Yeah, it's to me. So one of the things once we've established uh, to me that idea or that sense of we can vocalize, we can make the pitch, we can find the pitch, you know, match the pitch, uh, that we can move that pitch. So we might do a moving line of, of a major scale, just uh, three steps. So I might have them move with that. Um, initially, I don't even worry about solfege. Again, I don't want them thinking like, wait, I'm not in choir. So initially, I don't, I don't concern myself with that uh, for them.
0: Do you use but, hand, do you use like numbers one two three of the scale? How do you get them to move? One two
2: three, we can move one two three. Uh, yep, as we move, um, or I might be playing it on my instrument as they're vocalizing it. Um, so I use that as a as a model. Um, so you're you're another teacher who has
0: your your horn or a horn at the podium when you teach. Yes, yes. yes. I, I, you know Phil Snedeker is a great trumpet performer and teacher. I think he's down at Hart School of Music. Um, he came up. Um, and did some lessons for our kids and he noticed that my trumpet was was near the podium and he said you know what i can already tell you're a good teacher because your trumpet is near the near the podium and it's not that you're a trumpet player but you're demonstrating all the time for your kids what a good quality sound is it's like the amount of teachers and bandrooms i go into and the instrument is nowhere near the podium
2: if it's not if it's not set up in front of the podium, it's sitting behind me in my case because last year I made the mistake of leaving it set up on, on my trumpet stand, and it got knocked over and and uh, slight damage on my trumpet. So so I kind of keep it right there. But it is handy, and it's funny because I find myself using it when I'm in when I'm in uh, teaching mode, um, and my students now, uh, now it's funny because they kind of when they give their response, it's almost like a a cult kind of response that they kind of drone the answer back. Because I'll say, do you know what the difference is between teaching and directing? And and they'll go, yes, we do. And I said, well, and so teaching that you're engaging with asking questions and giving and getting feedback and get, and then what's, directing. And they're like, you just tell us what to do. And we do it. That's right. directing. And and so, yeah. So I love teaching. But those, you know, when we get close to performance time, there's very sure. little time. And I so I usually say to them, okay, I'm going into directing mode. And they go, okay. And so we have very little time. I need you to do these things. But I love teaching mode because I get to model. I get to demonstrate. I get to ask questions. I get to give examples. Um, so uh, yes, playing on my instrument is a, a big part of that. And one of the biggest reasons for having them sing, vocalize and sing pitch is their, it strengthens their intonation so quickly. And the best example I can point to this uh, anecdotally didn't even come from my own students it came when I guest conducted a fifth grade elementary band festival and we had these 80 fifth graders that had never played together and had only been playing that year or for schools that started in fourth grade you know so it was like uh there may have been fifth and sixth actually combined together so they only had about a year of experience on their instruments and of course it can be a little you know a bit of a cacophony of sound when you have that. And so, uh, I, I, this is, this was about four years or so ago when I was like making a really focused effort that I'm going to have the students sing and band and vocalized. And so I went to this festival completely with the intention to do this. And at some point, and so we had already gotten started with our day and we rehearsed for a couple of hours (laughs) And of course, you know, most everything we were doing wasn't really in tune. Uh, and I, so I, so I busted it out and I was like, okay, you know, kids uh, let's sing this pitch together. And, 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 I, and I, you, you can, and again, they're very young. So I couldn't just in my voice go, you know, do you know, ah, cause these kids are like 10 years old. And so, so I was like, oh. Ah make that pitch wherever you want to make it. And, and, and these fifth and sixth graders are all, you Hey, all these kids voices going ah with, you know, and, and, and so we stopped and I said, let's do it again. And so I made the pitch, they answered back and I said, let's do it one more time. We're just going to hold it out. We did did it one more time. Okay. So now let's do it on your instruments. The, it was as though we just, and all of that took, um, 30 seconds, 40 seconds. It was as though we had just spent. Fifteen minutes, going around the room, one kid to the next, uh, tuning, push in, pull out. uh, You're sharp. You're flat. Pull in. Put. You know all those things you'd have to do with kids. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like they
0: matured a full year in their
2: their, their intonation. It was it was. I wish that I had recorded the process because it was so profoundly distinct. It wasn't just simply, oh, I think, I think they sound better. I, I think it was, it was almost hard to believe how immediate their pitch, their intonation improved as an ensemble, as a group of students having done that exercise for literally 45 seconds and then putting their instrument back in in their mouth or on their face and executing that same pitch uh after doing after vocalizing it right for those few seconds it was it was profound so to me if if you're if your band seems to struggle with intonation you're in a a a, a, a lyrical piece a tone piece a sound piece and you're like man these we just we just struggle with intonation as we play this, Uh, vocalize, like get them to vocalize their pitch. Even if it's not, you know, for advancing students, you can do that through a phrase when you've really worked and you can have them vocalize a phrase um, or a chord, but just from the fundamental level of like, are we really truly hearing, hearing our pitch? Or am I just, I'm picking up my horn. I'm pushing down the buttons. And and that note comes out, and it's like, oh, so then that's where I do go in and demonstrate. So I'm like, oh, it does, does it? So I'll go, (laughs) real like, so so you know, we can make lots of sound from one set of buttons or one set of fingers. So you know, what do we hear in our brain before we've even made the pitch, and then when we're analyzing it, so.
0: And and what are it's, there's a common denominator, sorry to interrupt you, but there's a common denominator with bands who play in tune and play with good tone. It's not rocket science. Their teachers just insist on it. Right. It's just part, we don't wait until the week before the concert to work on the tone. It's like an all the time thing.
2: It's right from the beginning. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's paramount to um, in the choral side of things. I, I remember uh, reading an opening you know, article in professional development uh, at the beginning of a year and, and, the, and the college professor was talking about how when they introduce a new piece of choral literature, they talk about the lyrics immediately and what the piece means and what what the meaning is behind the lyrics before they've even sung a, a note so that they are going into it already with a sense of how they should be of approaching the piece. So, and yet a lot of times we take a piece of music out with our band students and we're like, we're gonna sight read this. Uh, here's the time signature, here's the key signature. You know, we're going into it all these, the very important technical aspects, but what are the kind of some of the interpretive things that if we if we took a moment also to say, you know, here's, here's the intent of this piece, here's the purpose of this piece musically, How much better would they start sounding out of the gate as well? Um, And I'm convinced that when I do take that time, that they do sound better. Um, Interestingly enough, in my first year of teaching, budgetary things being what they were, when I first started teaching at the school that uh, hadn't established itself as a music program, it was just getting started, we didn't have a tuner our first year. We tuned to the piano our entire first year, and then we tuned to each other. So we had to listen to each other for everything, for all of our information. And my, my, I still remember that. And my takeaway now is like, great, we have a tuner and we'll go through tuning, sure, when we, when we need to. And, and then I'll usually follow it with saying, great, we just used the tuner, are, are we done tuning? And the kids will shake their heads no now they'll shake their heads and they'll or they'll drone no and they're like how come we're not done tuning and they'll say because every note and every phrase requires listening as we tune so every time yeah, every time and so that's why i always say also why i say music playing music singing it's the best brain developing thing that we can do because Every time we do something, we go from executing it to analyzing it and how we're going to execute the next thing. And it all happens almost instantaneously. That And for a good musician, that is happening so rapidly. And for the developing musician, it's so important to, to hold them to that expectation that, that, that it needs to be in tune. So we go from singing in or vocalizing and singing in unison pitch to um, like my band, I'll, uh, they know which voice parts they are in the band, soprano, alto, tenor, or bass. And we talk about it, you know, you know we're a, a choir of sound, which instruments are soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. And then they're assigned a, a, a chord tone in a, in a triad. And so when we do a key, I'll say, okay, you know, play your, your chord in this key uh, based on your SATB voicing. And ta-da, we play a chord, bum, bum, bum. You know, we play one, three, five, whichever step of of the scale, depending on their voice part. So when we develop their skills, we go from having them vocalize a unison pitch. And when we're playing a chord, and I'm like, that is not in tune, like that chord, I'll have them vocalize the note, the pitch that you are supposed to be playing. Can you vocalize it as we play a chord? Because some students unison, they're like gangbusters. They're like, "Yeah, unison, I'm playing, it and it's great." And the moment they go into a harmony line, they their intonation just goes out the window. Why? Well, they're not relating it to the other pitches, uh, and it's the relationships not right. So to me, that's back to their listening their ear training and how we train that. And to me, I have them vocalize it. And again, the improvement is almost immediate. Um, and honestly, I use those chords in I rely on those more for tuning than I do a tuner for tuning, actually. Uh, I only resort to the tuner when, you know, that student, I won't even mention an instrument, because it could be any instrument, um, when that student there, there's something up with the length of their instrument or, you know, or their embouchure needs some significant attention because they, 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 we've tried everything listening and it's just not happening.
1: Right. So, yeah. Great. Have you ever found that I know for many high school band directors, their school year has to start with marching band and that's an opportune time to use vocalizing when uh, playing. And uh, what I used to do was I would get a recording of, specifically i usually get Gino Cipriano's recording of Carolina Crown doing their warm up arc where they'd be playing chords and everything and then they'd sing and i'd play it for the kids at the very beginning of the season and say this is the way to really get a good sound and so then we'd be outside and we'd go outside and say listen remember if carolina crown can do it our little high school can do it and we'd start getting in arcs and we'd play something and then we'd sing the unison and as you said to build the chord and then eventually build to the phrase and then when we got near the end of the the marching season when we had to practice a lot to get ready for whatever championship we were playing for we'd instead of just doing air and valves we'd do singing and valves and we'd play the whole show marching the whole show singing it drummers would play with their fingertips on their drums so that note so we could hear a good balance mallet players would just use the erasers from uh, pencils and play on their mallet instruments so they wouldn't get the would uh, they get the opportunity to play and you you could talk about the singing Well, see well when you sang that chord there did it sound like what we wanted and they'd say no and then we talk about just as you said and that took a lot of fear about singing away because they didn't realize that they had watched the video and of course they watched the video a lot so it's sort of got in their head that that's a good thing to do and it took away a lot of that animosity that you talk about that you need to build within the group and learning to tune because as you said you can adjust the length of the horn to get it all match up but the minute you start playing repertory you've got to be listening to the phrases and the, all the notes to fit them in together and if you're in an outdoor setting well then you have that added little effect of temperature that people have to adjust to that no tuner in the world is going to fix for you.
2: Yeah. I point out to the kids, I show them my trumpet and I show them my tuning slide and I point out this tuning slide. I mean, it moves, but it's been in the same place pretty much for most of my life as, a, as an adult trained musician, because that's where it is for me in tune. And I, I don't move it much unless you know, weather conditions are such that it necessitates it. The rest of it is me making m- m- immediate adjustments, whether it's air or embouchure or it, all of those things. And But I know to do that because of what I'm listening for. And mm-hmm. I know to do that because of, how, you know, I, as I said, I've, I've performed a lot as an instrumentalist, but also as a vocalist. So I think I'm very comfortable with that. But I also know that I rely... On what I, how I vocalize, uh, and then when I attach it to my instrument, it just be, becomes that much stronger.
0: I, I think sometimes the most we move our tuning slide is when we're going to play a church gig with some older singers, and we push all the way in before we're going to play in unison with the Sopranos. Right?
2: Yeah, I, it's just it, it's just kind of present. And I think even as you were saying, Jeff, you know how you how you use that in your rehearsals. To me, in the classroom, it becomes. Um, uh, again, I wouldn't necessarily have this as a. Um, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say like every day I have uh, maybe scale exercises and articulations and these warm ups. the 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 part of every day vocalizing is minimal as far as an organized structured, this is the time we do it. That's minimal to me. Um, it's present, but it's not very lengthy. Um, what is consistently done is that in the rehearsal that you're, you're quickly turning to it for, for, as a quick, uh, uh, Pedagogical technique. Uh, so so we're in the rehearsal and we're playing that phrase from a piece of music. And we're like, oh, that wasn't in tune. Uh, trumpets, let's uh, vocalize that pitch for me on that. And, and here it is. And then you're like, oh, oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, great. Uh, can, can Trombones, can I hear you vocalize that with them? And then you move back into your playing of it. And so you're kind of, what your goal is, my goal is is to kind of have it become a seamless part of your teaching right. just like any other uh, part of okay uh that rhythm's not right let's clap and count that okay mm-hmm. uh you know sure we we I do that as a, as an exercise before I do our class as we start it as a warm up we do rhythm exercises but I but I don't spend 10 minutes clapping and counting rhythms every class I do a short segment and then we're on but in my class time rehearsing it's woven into it so to me how do you how do you weave in the vocalizing and and the singing and that's an awareness even as Kyle said right at the beginning it's something that we do we think about doing and then we realize oh I really don't do that as much as I could or should and I even as much as I'm aware of it I still find myself thinking oh I I could have saved myself a lot of headache if I just had them sing or vocalize that little phrase or that pitch um and and it's applicable. We've been talking primarily about band, concert band. This is something that's applicable in any uh, genre of or medium that you're playing. In the jazz ensembles, I I do the same thing in in the big bands, um, and I think that's one of the things that's led to helps to lead to. Do, uh better intonation, quicker in that small ensemble. Uh, is that it, it, and they tighten up rhythms a little bit quicker as we sing those things together. Um, to me, it just really gets at the heart of like what's what's in their what's in their head. How are they interpreting this sound? Um, um, and takes out of the way any of the technical fas- you know facilities that we they may be lacking or. Um, you know, if I'm thinking that I'm working with the saxophone section on articulating a passage, let's say it's, uh, um, um, and if I'm articulating saying to the saxophones, Oh, we're not articulating Let's do that slower. And we do it slower and they still don't articulate it. Right. Have I even had them sing it to, uh, how to find out how they're even thinking it Mm. sounds before approaching the instrument um because that could be the bigger problem not that they've got this horn and that is technically difficult or the passage fingering passage it just may be to begin with they don't even have a concept of what this sounds like so um and then with with vocalizing it whether it's concert band or whether it's uh jazz i think some of the things that we get into is articulating it um uh, you know what sounds are we using articulating it uh, whether it's their clear or just the breath behind it in jazz I have them articulate when we sing ba-adoo ba-adoo ba-adoo. so it's important in jazz that I have that they articulate it in syllables with the syllables that will connect with the articulation so um, so we, I talk a lot about that with them and work at that. And it's slowly, and it's in really simple phrases to begin with. In jazz studies, for instance, I would have them vocalize. I talk about um, in every other articulation to begin with as a study. Da, 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 just to slowly get that idea of tongue slur, tongue slur. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, whether it's jazz or whether it's concert literature, uh, the sound we're using as we vocalize really then connects to the articulation that they'll use uh, in their playing.
0: You know, it's funny. Something you said—you're talking about being able to use it seamlessly as a tool. You know, you make it the, the the correlation to any tradesperson. Take a plumber. You know, how many tools do they have in their in their kit when they show up to the job? They don't know what the issue is going to be. They're they're there to fix a whatever, and they're not just going to use a hammer because they have a hammer you know, they're going to use it when they need to use it They use the screwdriver when they need to use it and, 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 and all those things. So, you know, we're the same way. So you're right. Those master teachers who can just say, oh, I'm going to seamlessly use this. And then people who are watching might go, wait a minute. I have no idea what you just did. That was awesome. You know, and when we first learn how to use it, we make it a big deal that we're using it. But then the more experience you get using it, you just take it out and use it when needed and then put it away. And nobody even knows.
2: Well, I also think as, as you gain more experience, uh, to use your analogy of the of the plumber or the carpenter, I just did a dishwasher installation for my niece yesterday. Uh, so when, when, you're, when you have done things for a number of years, if that's your trade, you've accumulated a lot of tools, a lot. Um, as you accumulate more tools and more things, there may be some things that you forget where they are or I put that somewhere, or it's mm-hmm. not as handy, but you've got your kind of like your, your go-to tools are in your main bag or bucket. Um, and as educators, as we teach more, we've seen a lot of different techniques and methodologies and strategies. We have our go-tos, and then we might, we might see something new and go, oh my gosh, yeah, I got to But how do we continue to, be focused in what we use um and be effective in all that we use right. and that to me that be, that becomes about having a real clear plan when you go into a classroom not kind of like oh t- uh, t- today um yeah uh today yeah i have band today oh yeah we've been working on this repertoire that's what we're doing today well, well, what what are you doing to, like what passage from that piece and what are you focusing on on that passage in that piece mm-hmm. that helps to keep you focused so that when you do encounter problems now you're reaching you're not trying to reach from a like a whole shop full of tools cuz in the moment you need your your go to bucket of tools right. and and so being you know having focused lessons and classes rehearsals planned is a really really big big key Um, And and our students appreciate that, too, um, that focus. Um, You know, I don't write on the board. You know, I I write on the board and so that they see it every day that they come to class. It's written out which pieces and on which sections and what specifically are we are the concepts that we're dealing with on those sections. And they may be two or three in a particular day. Um, I don't write in there. We'll be vocalizing measure you know, 22 on this because I don't necessarily know if that's going to be needed or not. Um, it might be, but I still have to be, as the educator, I have to be prepared that, that that's uh, maybe a necessity. Um, and But if it's not something I've worked on or used before, I, I may not even try to pull it out of my bag. So it does take practice. Um, I, I feel like, Maybe I have a little advantage over somebody that's not vocally doing work consistently because I do use that part of my brain and and teaching every every other day. I'm doing vocal one day essentially, and I'm doing the instrumental another day. Um, and some days they kind of get thrown in together when I have two vocal jazz ensembles and a big band on the same day after school or something. So, right. um, but but I think becoming you know allowing yourself to try new things. Um, A great example of that is um, uh, we had um, uh, Steve Massey, right, was um, for here for Allstate jazz wasn't he a few years ago
0: he was i think it was i think it was seven or eight years ago now
2: yeah and then he came back a few years a couple a year or two later and did an a clinic like a session at, at jazz at, at uh, all conference and he spoke about a particular way that he used rhythm studies and and I, I mean it was the way he presented it was in a way that i hadn't really seen or heard before for whatever reason it struck me in a particular way and i immediately went back to my School and to my students and said we're doing this right yeah. right now and my students were like they groaned and they were like you know and and then the next year because that's in the spring for Maine's All State the next year we started out the year and and I was like right back on it and the kids kind of like oh this again uh, and I've and I've never strayed from using them that, that was you know several years ago and it stuck with me and I use it every time. But the interesting thing is I asked my students as we finished the year and did reflections. Um, I asked them about those kinds of exercises and our fundamentals books and those those things that we use as daily reading studies and whatnot. I said, I asked them, you can you can be hundred percent honest. It, it's not gonna, you know, offend me. Do you find these effective and in what ways? And to a student, they all found positive things from doing those. Uh, and to me, one of those things was that they pointed out was using singing and vocalizing, you know, like, uh, it's, it's effective that it helps them. It may not be the thing that they is their go-to for them personally as a, as a, as a, um, thing that they enjoy doing, but they see the value in it. They see the right. results of it. And I think be, in part, because then they receive the results, that there's easier buy-in the next time. And as that continues to go on, then you come into a new year, you've got new kids that are like, what? And the older students are like, it's fine. Don't worry. You know, like, it's it's fine. It's not a big deal. That's
0: part of the culture that you've built.
1: Yeah. yeah. Could I emphasize one thing that Dean said? Um, you know, you talked about putting on the whiteboard that for each day, what you're going to work on, but then you incorporate the vocalizing whenever you see it as a necessary tool to use to fix something. Um, Having worked with super student teachers and everything, I think that's an important thing to point out to all teachers. You need to have on your board, your whiteboard, what the goals are of the day so that the students can see clearly what you want to accomplish so that there's a communication rather than you having to say, okay, get out this piece. They walk into the classroom, they see we're gonna work on this, 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 these measures, they know and they're focused. And I think that has lessened in many of the classrooms I've walked in where I'm walking in either on a student teacher, which they got the hint they had to do it, or watching the cooperating teacher and all I see is a blank board up there and they're teaching and then the student teacher kicks in. We, we need to reemphasize that being a band director or a choral director or an orchestra director, you don't pull the, the uh, trick out of the bag at the beginning of class. You have to uh, have your lessons done written out so you know what you want to do for each day so you can make a progression and growth and i think that that was an outstanding point and how you talked about building the vocalizing into it when it's a needed tool to fix a situation so i just wanted yeah. to emphasize that i thought that was outstanding
2: my students get i think they get so used to it that um even some of them are, are creature where we're all creatures of habit but uh i distinctly remember uh, my, my movable whiteboard, I had to move it to the other, to the, my other side in, in my previous classroom, it was on my left. So the students right. and for whatever reason, one day space in the room, I had to move it to the other side and a student walked in and, and looked to the left and went, where's the board? Where, mm-hmm. and, and they looked to the other side, like, Oh, there it is. Uh-huh. Oh, phew. I like, you know, like they, they really do come in and start to look. and actually so much so that, um, so much so that one, I had one class day, and I didn't really think much about it. It was the day before a concert. And I had just simply written our program, what our program was for the concert, the next day. And so you know, here are the pieces. And, um, and I just and, and one of the students sat down and they said, "Oh, you don't have anything written out next to the pieces." And I said, you are right. Th- thank you for pointing that out to me. And and I went to the board and add, you know, like here's and but in my mind initially I was like, of course they know it's the day before that we're gonna play through the program and we're gonna go back and we're gonna do this. And I thought, but they 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 kind of know that, but they we still need those reminders. Like, this is what we're, this is where we're going. This is, so I found myself after that in the subsequent performances through the year, when we had the day before, I'd still like, here's the program order. Here's what we're, you know, we're going to stop and assess and reevaluate. And Mm -hmm. I would write that on the board. And, uh, you know, it, I think one of the younger students actually commented one day, do you plan out each of these days? (laughs) Like, like, what do you you mean? Like, it's all written here on the board. Do you think like, I just like seconds before you walk in, I like write it down on the board and like throw it like, yeah, I mean, it takes, you have to think about it. Plus I I teach like uh, eight or nine performing ensembles and two or three other, you know, non-performing classes. I, I'm i not that good. I just can't. <laughs> like, you have to I, plan ahead. Um, yeah, I
0: can't. I, I had a, a couple thoughts. Um, one is something you reminded me of, and then the second one was something that you and I talked about um, at District 5 at that Honor Band Festival, and I was fascinated by it. I'm hoping we'll be part of this conversation. Um, also, for anybody who's in District 1 here in Maine, Dean, I believe you're, you've are you agreed to do our Honor Band next year, District 1 Concert Band. Yeah, this is going to be and, great. And I, what are we doing for repertoire? One... Uh, beautiful
2: life. Yep, one beautiful, beautiful
0: life. life. Uh life.
2: And yep, Julie Giroux. Um, um. I should know. That, that was that. Uh, that was Foundry John Mackey, um, John Mackey's Foundry. And
0: hold on, let me look real quick. I have it. I, I thought down. so.
2: I thought John Mackey's fast. Foundry and uh, a Spanish March, Amperito Roca That's right. Jaime Tesidor So
0: yep. Um, so, so anyway, what I thought of was you were talking about the playing through of the performance and many of us play through the day performance of the performance the day of, and that's very valid. One thing I found is about three or four weeks ahead of the performance. I try to do that as well. Cause so many, so often when you're doing, you're working everything, the kids don't know what it's like to play piece one, two, and three, or one, two, three, four, or five, or however many you have. And I've actually had times where you go through and it's not concert ready, but it's, you know, at 75, 80, 90%. And you go through it, and all of a sudden, the kids click as to what the purpose is. And then there's other things that are issues that you didn't think were issues, and some stuff takes care of itself. And sometimes even that you're like, the concert order is wrong. Like in my head, this was the concert order. But now as we actually do it, we should switch piece A and piece B. Um, And that's usually fun when those kids get to come in and they get to just perform that day. You know, and it's a nice mix up too. Sometimes that works The Friday, like two weeks before the performance, or something like
2: that. Well, the other reason that's a good idea is that we, when we're going into every class with that set of, you know, here's what we're going to work on, and here's my goal, and here's what we're, here's my focus. We we do become kind of um, a little bit of tunnel vision with what we're hearing and seeing and recognizing, and so I can find myself sometimes, you know usually it's the more experienced older students that they'll bring to my attention. like, Oh, Mr. Neil, I, I think that uh, there's a thing here that we miss. I'm like, Oh, that's great. That you brought that up because I was so focused on this other element that right. I, it was there. I just, my, my brain didn't process it. So thank you. So I do think that we can go into rehearsals with a plan with these things and we can miss some things sometimes because yeah. there's a lot there to get. So kind of doing a playthrough and in, in a way, having our minds open to what's what am I going to take away from this gives us a chance to kind of reassess. It's kind, In a way, it's very much like what happens when you're conducting a festival. Because mm-hmm. in a festival, you go in, here's what we're going to work on. But after you know a bit, you're going to do kind of like a run through and you kind of reassess this, this is where we're at on this piece. I just need to hear, hear where, where we're at. And then I can make a plan for how I'm going to go through this afternoon or right. tomorrow. And so in our own classes, we do need to, as edu- as the educator, we need to kind of st- st- step back and be those um, uh, non-judgmental ears for a moment. Right. So we can just kind of take it in and go like, oh, that's, that's what's happening there. Oh, so yeah. yeah.
0: The the other thing we that you were talking about um, when we were together this winter was your use of chord tones one three five and seven. You were using it in jazz choir but also in band where the kids would be given a certain pitch and they'd sing the major seven chord and you'd move one note down at a time to create yeah. qualities of chords. I know that's a very advanced thing. Um, and then the whole thing could kind of descend throughout. And you were also talking about using like you play the one and the five and then you sing the one and the five and then you play the one and the five and you sing the three and then you play the one and the three and the sing the five, you know, all those sorts of, of things. So could you talk a little bit about that whole approach?
2: Right. So, I mean, this is good. This speaks to ear training and really advanced students. Um, So one of the, absolutely one of the things I love doing in the choral group is, is this uh, warm up where I call it chord tuning. So, um, the basses and the altos are, so, are assigned the root of a triad. Uh, of, a, of, a, of a Yeah, of a triad. We start with a triad. Um, and so the basses and the altos are on the root. The tenors are on the fifth and the sopranos are on the third. Um, so, and it's voiced one, five, one, three is the voicing. And I usually start on a concert F chord with the vocal group. It's usually pretty comfortable. And then from that, there's a, it's a descending line, the soprano line, the, the third, the descending line, um, it goes down, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the root, the altos go down first, um, and they then form a major seventh, and then they go down again, and they form a dominant seventh, and then the sopranos go down, and they form a minor seventh chord, and then the altos go back up a half step, the sopranos stay where they are. Um, and the tenors and basses go down a half step and we start the whole thing over again. So it basically works its way through this major seven, dominant seven, minor seven sequence, and then we're back to a major triad. What's really interesting is when you, with the advancing students, when you've gone from simply saying, here are your chord tones in the band, your soprano, alto, tenor, bass, when you can advance to that point where, okay, let's play that major chord all together, Um, great. Um, then you can actually indicate uh, to your band um, half-step motion right. and movement. And so you can start to hear these chords develop in your band. It, one of the things that it helps them to do, helps them to work on chromatics, because they're moving half-steps. They're hearing chords in every key uh, and all this kind of motion. That's from their playing, you know, like on their instrument standpoint. If you can get your, if you can advance your students to the point instrumentally where they're singing a a triad, that's awesome. Fantastic. If you want to try, like, I think these kids in this band, they like really, I think they're really clicking. Um, Then you can try doing that kind of motion, that half-step movement. I think what I've, what I've found is that when I've tried to do that in, in my ensembles, instrumental ensembles, it's been very difficult to do that in my large you know, 60, 60 instrument ensemble mm-hmm. um, because of those half step mo- motions. In my smaller ensembles, like a, a jazz ensemble, it's been very much more a- attainable. did
0: um, you do but, it with the pro- with a projected piano or something where you can you can play the pitch and have them help too?
2: You can that in like in the choir when I started in the beginning of the year, it's all, always accompanied at, at the start. So the piano's playing with them as they move on the pitches. I'm conducting it; it's being played, and then after a few weeks, we take away that piano and and try it a cappella. Usually, that first a cappella attempt early in the year, even chorally, because we got a lot of new students. It's uh, it's an adventure, and uh, and we don't get very far. We maybe move two or three chords uh, a cappella. Well,
0: what's, what's funny too is it feels like there's a simpler way to do that too that, that might work is if you just took the triad, right. Mm -hmm. And then you move the third down and then move the fifth down to make the diminished chord. Yep. And then you move the bass down and all of a sudden it's a major chord again.
2: Correct. You could so you could do it. If if you just wanted a triadic motion, then you could absolutely do it, do it that way as well. Um, So again, the the benefit is huge ear training, like benefit for, for your ensembles really tremendous. Um, And it just, honestly at first it can seem confusing to the kids. this is again where it sits on my board for the whole year that right. motion in my choral classroom it's I wrote write it at the beginning of the year here here's your mo- motion or movement and it stays there um, so so that it never moves um, in the same way at the beginning of the year in the in the band room, I write SATB and I write one you know three, five one I write there, their step designation and it never moves off that board for the whole year. So, um, you know, they have a place to look and they have a place to go. Um, and, and so as their ear training in, improves, you know, we can, we can do things like you said, they can, you can have your chord played. Okay. Let's everybody play our chord uh, that plays the root and the fifth. Nobody play the third, you, you know, you soprano voices, don't play the third. Uh, so they're playing the root and the fifth. And then I'll ask, you know, can you sing the third in that chord? Uh, can you place that third in there? And we, we can do all those kinds of little games and, and, you know, activities as a way for advanced students, maybe to demonstrate uh, stronger ear training skills. Um, and then still giving them a point of reference, um, I think is important as they continue to grow that. So either we're doing it with some of our instruments or we have a, a piano uh, there. I know t- my teaching, I have my horn right there. There is a piano in my room that's off to the side that if I need it, I go over to that. Now I'll, I'll play it if needed. I don't keep it right next to the podium just as a spatial you know, a, a, a area a kind of thing. Have you ever
0: used the like, harmony director? No. I haven't either. I'm very interested. Nope. Well, we've, we've sort of a, a hit on the topics that we were planning on. Jeff or Dean, are there things that we have not talked about that you'd like to bring up before we close?
1: No, I think Dean's been very thorough.
0: Oh, the only thing I
2: noticed in my bullet, um, we, we kind of talked about intonation. Tone, you mentioned actually, Kyle, at one point, like our, our singing tone relative to our playing tone. You can take them through different vowels. You know, and it's, you can and on and 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 if you just can, keep working at ooh and different vowel shapes, I think it does help them connect with how they sound on their instrument as well. And it helps to deal with placing of the tongue, opening up the throat. So that idea of when you do these exercises, you can change vowel sounds to even talk about how it might change their tone on a particular piece. If you're like, oh, no, 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 we're playing this piece and it really needs to be played with a a darker, warmer kind of tone. Well, what would that sound like with regard to vowels that we would use? Um, Or um, if we want this to be really bright and and we're going to have a little bit of edge here, you know, what does that sound like to you? Uh, Just in your head, make that sound, you know, vocally. So I think that's the last thing bit that I had bulleted that, that I wanted to mention, but everything else I think uh, covered in, in, in uh, really great detail.
0: I, I will say, Dean, I, um, if people are hearing this and they would like to reach out for you to you, maybe for some individual advice, um, I'm sure that you'd be willing to help them or in helping you know, solve problems in their own groups or to clarify anything that you've said, is there an easy way that they could con- connect with you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to reach out for sure. Um, My personal email is dnealteaches, teaches -teaches, at gmail.com. So they can reach me through email and uh, touch base with me. And and, uh, anything that I can do to help out would be, um, I'd be more than happy to.
0: Well, that's fantastic. We really appreciate you having here, everybody. Big round of applause for Dean Neal. Thank you, Dean, so much. And enjoy your summer. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening to the Growing Band Director podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your Band Director friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you have the time, we highly recommend the After Sectionals podcast for more great listening. Thank you for listening to the Growing Band Director. See you next week.